Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Don Marsh. There's renewed interest in Hamilton thanks to the hugely successful Broadway musical soon to be seen on stage here at the Fox. Washington University history professor Peter Castor has fashioned one of his courses around Hamilton the Musical and Hamilton the Man. His interest, how faithful the musical is to history. Peter Castor, uh, Castor that is joins me in studio. I'll get your name right one of these days, Peter. That's fine. It's a pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. Thanks for coming in on on President's Day. Mm -hmm. Okay, Hamilton the Musical. You've seen it. You have all of that groundwork plus your knowledge of history. In general terms, how faithful is the musical to history? The musical is actually very faithful to history, and there are certain things it does well. There are certain things it doesn't do as well, but the things it does well, it does really well. It captures uh, Hamilton's personality very well. It captures uh, the role that George Washington played as the first president very well. The other thing that is really impressive about it is it, it captures some of the complexities of the political culture. You know, it explains why Alexander Hamilton would fight a duel, why, why his son would fight a duel. Mm-hmm. It does that very well, and it explains some of the major uh, policy arguments at that time quite well. How do you teach it? You're using the musical and the history book to teach it. So I uh, taught a course that uh, last semester that situated Hamilton at the center of a study of the era in which he he lived. The first thing the students did was to listen to the musical. I had them listen to the musical. I actually had them read the Wikipedia entry because that also tries to construct Hamilton for a public audience. And then as we were reading additional material during the semester, we kept coming back to asking, well, how does the musical address this issue? Is the public perception of Hamilton accurate or inaccurate to what we're reading? And uh, the students were very interested in it. Most of them had listened to the musical. Some hadn't. Some had seen it, um, but not all of them had. They just knew it was this Thing that all Americans were interested in. You, you mentioned uh, the perception of Hamilton when you're coming in to the mm-hmm. studio today. The perception is fairly erroneous, isn't it? It is. Uh, my colleague, Roddy Rodiger, who has done this wonderful research on what Americans know about their presidents, reveals that a majority of Americans, uh, if given the name Alexander Hamilton, think he was a president. And, and they believe that with very high certainty. Uh, but it's not surprising. He's on currency. Uh, they, he, his name somehow radiates the fa- he was one of the founding fathers. And I, so it's not surprising people would think he was a president, even though he was not. We want to be listening to some of the music from Hamilton during mm-hmm. the, our discussion here. But one of the things that will get us to the first number is, was Hamilton treated as, quote, the other because of his, the fact that he was born in the Caribbean and uh, came to this country as a teenager? Well, I think actually not as much as the musical would have you think. The musical describes him repeatedly as an immigrant. Mm -hmm. But in his own time, he would have been understood as a migrant who had moved from one British colony to another one. He had moved from uh, Nevis to uh, New York. Mm -hmm. And there was a lot of movement within the British imperial system. And I think what mattered to the people around him was less the fact that he wasn't from the North American mainland and more the fact that he came from these very modest circumstances. And a lot of the other founding fathers had been born to wealth. So he, he seemed odd in that way. But uh, they didn't uh, overtake him in terms of his ambition. He was ambitious from the get-go. He was go. very ambitious from the so So they understood that. He was surrounded by ambitious people. And he was very ambitious himself. Is that what the, uh, the song My Shot from Hamilton is all about? 
Well, I think that's the main thing it's about, but you and I were discussing that one of the wonderful things about the musical is there often are multiple elements to a song. So, of course, Hamilton will die from a gunshot. And you get a hint of that in the song. But yes, I think it's principally about his ambition and the fact that a lot of young men of his generation during the American Revolution thought, this is our time, this is our opportunity. Let's give a listen. I am not throwing away my shot. I am not throwing away my shot. And you know, I'm just like my country. I'm young, scrappy, and hungry, and I'm not throwing away my shot. I'm going to get a scholarship to King's College. I probably shouldn't brag, but dag, I'm amazed and astonished. The problem is I got a lot of brains, but no polish. I got a holler just to be heard with every word. I drop knowledge. I'm a diamond in the rough. A shiny piece of coal trying to reach my goal. My power of speech, unimpeachable. Only 19, but my mind is older. These New York City streets get colder. I shoulder every burden, every I saw something on YouTube yesterday in which they were suggesting that maybe what this was all about was the shots of whiskey that were on the table when this song is performed. It could be. I think that's part of it also. But but it clearly, I mean, it clearly, I think, uh, represents his chance. Absolutely. To, to be a part of the party, yeah. Uh, yeah. as it were. And a lot of Americans, a lot of British colonists and then Americans really felt that way, that at this moment of revolution, that there would be all of these new opportunities for them. One of the great uh, rivalries during this time, of course, was Alexander Hamilton and Thomas Jefferson. What, what was the, uh, the source of their friction? Sources. <laughs> they uh, agreed in the 1780s, uh, there, was actu- there were actually a number of issues on which they agreed. Uh, and when they first joined Washington's cabinet, there were a lot of uh, priorities on which they agreed. During the 1790s, they found that they disagreed on just about everything. They disagreed on domestic policy, foreign policy, and also what form the nation should take. Hamilton's vision for the United States started from this uh, sense of urban economic development. He really wanted to see the U.S. grow and remain unified that way. Jefferson was just as committed to union, but he believed the basis for that should come mostly from rural America, from farmers, and the disagreements just flowed from there and eventually took form in the two political parties that they led. Hamilton became the leader, eventually the Federalist Party, and Jefferson became leader of what was eventually known as the Republican Party. How did the uh, banking and finances work its way into this, uh, in, into this relationship? So one of the reasons Hamilton Uh, endorsed the Constitution was he thought it would uh, put the U.S. financial house in order. And then when he became Secretary of the Treasury, that was his uh, principal goal, which was to find a way to for the federal government to take charge of the numerous state debts and to pay off those debts and to establish national credit. And he believed that the way to do that was to issue was to create a national bank that would monetize the debt and to have that bank issue a series of bonds. Well, that makes a certain obvious fiscal sense. But Jefferson believed this would enrich a small number of financial speculators who would have undue power, undue influence. So Jefferson was strongly opposed to this. Hamilton just as strongly believed it was absolutely necessary for the survival of the country. They knocked heads on this more than once, did they not? Absolutely. And at the end of the day, Jefferson's political vision won out, but Hamilton was spot on about this. In 1787, 
these bonds that Americans had produced were trading well below par. By the mid-1790s, American uh, bonds issued by the federal government were trading above par. This is not generally the stuff of Broadway musicals, by the way. No, but that's one of the things the musical did so well. I've had people... Uh, I've met people who see this musical and they come out knowing about the great financial arguments of the early 1790s. There's a, a pretty good scene uh, in the musical of a cabinet meeting in which Jefferson and, uh, and Hamilton did knock heads on this. Set that up for us, if you would. Okay. So in 1790, there was a, there was a big argument about whether... Hamilton's financial plan was not only good for the country, but whether it would have political support. So not only was Jefferson opposed to it, but so was James Madison, who was a very powerful congressman at that time from Virginia. And this argument went on and on. And eventually, Washington brokered um, a meeting that resolved this. But the way the musical does it is to treat it like it's somewhere between a boxing match and a public debate. And George Washington, the referee, I guess, because exactly. he, he begins this. The issue on the table. Secretary Hamilton's plan to assume state debt and establish a national bank. Secretary Jefferson, you have the floor, sir. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We fought for these ideals, we shouldn't settle for less. These are wise words, enterprising men quote them. Don't act surprised, you guys, because I wrote them. But Hamilton forgets his plan would have the government assume state debts. Now place your bets as to who that benefits. The very seat of government where Hamilton sits. Not true. Ooh, if the shoe fits, wear it. If New York's in debt, why should Virginia bear it? Uh, our debts are paid, I'm afraid. Don't tax the South, because we got it made in the shade. If we assume the debts, the union gets a new line of credit, a financial diuretic. How do you not get it? If we're aggressive and competitive, the union gets a boost. You'd rather give it a sedative. A civics lesson from a slave or hey neighbor. Your debts are paid because you don't pay for labor. We plant seeds in the South. We create and keep ranting. We know who's really doing the planting. And another thing, Mr. Age of Enlightenment. You know, I think made in the shade was not a term that was used very commonly back in 1790. No, it was not. And there are actually two songs that are done as cabinet debates. And what's interesting is... And, and this gets to the challenge of the musical. Washington's cabinet didn't actually meet in a room together until 1793. Uh-huh. Instead, these debates occurred mostly in letters between and among officials and with uh, Washington himself. So the musical does take some license with it, but as storytelling, it works really well. You know, Hamilton, in, in that song, The, the uh, Cabinet Battle, um, really takes a couple of shots uh, at the slavery issue. Exactly. Uh, was this was this something that was likely to have happened uh, in this time amongst these people? Not among, not so much with Hamilton, personally. But this did emerge as part of a larger debate that the different sections of the country were having with each mm-hmm. other. Uh, we know that eventually the slavery issue is what's going to cause the Civil War. The striking thing to me is that at this time. Leading American politicians were doing everything they could to prevent slavery from becoming a public, an issue of public debate because they were convinced it would uh, destroy the union. But there were some uh, northern leaders who said, 
Southern leaders simply don't understand our circumstances because they have slaves to do all of their labor for them. Not a whole lot of uh, discussion about slavery in the Constitution. There was some argument about it. What ends up happening is that slavery is always present during the constitutional debate. Mm -hmm. And the way many historians look at it is slaveholders got a terrific constitution Mm -hmm. because it protected their right to own slaves and created a union that was strong enough to preserve slavery. We're talking with Professor Peter Castor of Washington University. Uh, He taught a course last semester on Hamilton the Musical and Hamilton the Man. That's what we're talking about. We'll continue our conversation in just a moment with uh, more music. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Now back to our conversation with Peter Castor. Peter, um, you, you left us before that break talking about how the Constitution actually uh, was good for the South. Uh, specifically how? Well, first of all, it didn't provide uh, any provisions for the elimination of uh, slavery in the United States. There was the provision that 20 years later, uh, Congress could, if it chose, um, eliminate the foreign slave trade also, the three-fifths clause uh, is crucial, which, uh, which many th- – that was the principal source of anger to northern politicians, which was their belief that the South was – that slave states, rather, were overly apportioned with congressmen mm-hmm. because they had – because slaves, uh, slaves would count towards apportionment even though enslaved African Americans did not have citizenship rights. Uh, the other thing the Constitution did by creating a – strong federal government was to create a system that could preserve slavery. Slavery depended in part on a government that could keep it stable and enable it to expand. And that was only possible to some degree with central authority. I would like to invite uh, listeners to come into this conversation. If you have questions about Hamilton the Man or Hamilton the Musical, uh, give us a call at 382-8255. That's 382-TALK. You can send us an email to talk at stlpublicradio.org, or we'll certainly take a tweet at STL on air. How did, uh, how did the compromise come about uh, exactly to, to, to resolve some of these issues, particularly the, the issue of credit and finance? Well, we know the broad outlines of it. Uh, one, the principal agreement was that Jefferson and Madison signed on to uh, Hamilton's plan for public credit in exchange for having the permanent location of the federal capital located on the banks of the Potomac, which they wanted for several reasons, uh, not the least of which was that it was closer to their home state of Virginia. There was a strong push to make the permanent location of the federal capital in Philadelphia or a northern city. But to Jefferson and Madison, the issue wasn't just having it in the South. Looking back, that's what people tend to assume. They did not want it in one of those major cities because they believed that it would be corrupted by the, uh, by the economic leadership of those cities. They said, if we build a capital city where there isn't a city now, somehow our politics will remain more pure. And they came to regret that to some degree during the Jefferson administration because life in Washington, D.C. was miserable. It was a swamp. And of course, that term is used in a different way now. In many ways, people describe Washington, D.C. now in the same, with the same terms that Jefferson and Madison used to describe 
other northern cities. There, there is a, a, a number in the, uh, in the musical in the, called In the Room Where It Happens. Right. Is, is that what that song is all about? Absolutely. There was this dinner that Washington helped broker between Jefferson, Hamilton, and Madison. They, sort, they developed this compromise. And even looking back on it now, we have limited access to the details of what happened. In the musical, one of the principal characters is Aaron Burr, the man who will eventually kill Alexander mm-hmm. Hamilton. And for the song, as the story within the musical, Burr sees this meeting happen. He's excluded from it. And he desperately wants to be this mover and shaker who is, as they say, in the room where it happens. Two Virginians and an immigrant walk into a room diametrically opposed foes. They emerge with a compromise, having opened doors that were previously closed. Rose. The immigrant emerges with unprecedented financial power, a system he can shape however he wants. The Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the piece de resistance. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened, the room where it happened, the room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played, the art of the trade, how the sausage is made. We just assume that it happens. But no one else is in the room where it happens. Just another slight for Aaron Burr to have to endure, huh? Exactly, exactly. And a very timely song. We often wonder what goes on. Now we talk about smoke-filled rooms. Uh, Rooms then were less likely to be smoke-filled, but uh, there is still the same uh, secret nature of those conversations. And we do hear many references to watching how the sausage is made can can be pretty distasteful in in many ways, can't it? Yeah, exactly. The ultimate slight, though, is the fact that, again, correct me if my history is wrong here, but didn't didn't Hamilton um, endorse Jefferson for president over Burr, and that was the, the real problem? Uh, that's not the, th- and that's a uh, that's a big part of what eventually leads to the duel. Yeah. Um, in 1804, uh, Burr was running for governor of New York. He lost. He lost partly because Hamilton um, c- campaigned against him, and that's the and then some events that follow that explain why the duel happened in 1804. But the more important event, yes, was 1800, when. Jefferson and Burr were actually in the same party. But the way parties ran for president at that time, they were just getting started, was the uh, Democratic Republicans, later called the Republicans, had a northern candidate in Burr, a southern candidate in Jefferson. They thought if they could line up the electoral votes from uh, both the North and the South, uh, when this all shook out, Jefferson would be the president, and this is at a time when the person with the second most number of electoral votes became vice president. Mm-hmm. Well, Burr suddenly realized he might be able to become president. Mm-hmm. So from Jefferson's perspective, this was a complete betrayal. Now, John Adams, the Federalist candidate, it's clear right after the election he's not going to win. And this crisis in 1800 from the election took weeks to resolve. It ended up in the House of Representatives. And at the end of the day, Alexander Hamilton decided that he disliked Aaron Burr more than he disliked Thomas Jefferson. So he helped tip the balance toward Thomas Jefferson. So Jefferson's the president. Burr's the vice president. The two men hate each other. 
Jefferson marginalized and excluded Aaron Burr from any decision-making. Meanwhile, Burr, who had, uh, during the Revolution, been friendly with Hamilton, uh, came to despise Hamilton. And these all set the stage for this duel in 1804. And we think today's politics is complicated. Oh, my goodness. It it goes way back, doesn't it? Yes, it does. We have a couple of callers here, listeners who have called in. Let's bring them into the conversation. Mark and Potosi, uh, go ahead. You're on the air with Peter Castor. Uh, I can't remember from the history books whether or not Hamilton was uh, ever interested in becoming president, uh, running for it. Uh, Peter lived, of course. Uh, and do uh, historians uh, have any ideas on whether he would have made a good president? And thank you. I'll take uh, your answer off the air. That's a great question because in the musical, it hints that he wanted to be president but couldn't become president because of the scandal that came from an extramarital affair uh, that went public in the 1790s. But there's very little evidence that Hamilton actually sought to become president. He wanted to be the master backroom political manipulator. And the other thing that Hamilton learned during the 1790s was that he probably could not have gotten elected to public office, certainly not in New York, that his, his vision of politics Uh, was one that really couldn't adjust to democratic politics, the idea that you need to appeal to a large audience, that you need to mobilize and motivate average citizens. He tended to think that average citizens should uh, defer authority to elected officials. They shouldn't challenge them. And when they did, Hamilton was simply aghast. So uh, to get to your question of what might have happened if he became president, you know, historians try not to guess what might have happened, but it would have been very difficult for Hamilton to have campaigned to become a member of Congress. And as a president, it, it would have been very difficult for him because he frankly was, he got into so many fights, so many disagreements. He wasn't very good at generating uh, large-scale public support for what he did. He worked most effectively when he was First, the Secretary of the Treasury. He was highly effective in that appointed role. And in the late 1790s, he was the leader of the Federalist Party. And he actually actively undermined John Adams, the Federalist president, when Adams would not do what Hamilton wanted. This is something the musical doesn't even touch on. Could he have been elected president? He was born in the West Indies. True, but he was in in the places that became the United States before the Declaration of Independence. So, for example, in 1808, his eventual successor as Secretary of the Treasury, Albert Gallatin, had been born in Switzerland. And he wanted to be Secretary of State, which was the stepping stone to being president. And people said, we don't want him to be president. But legally, he could have made the case that he became a U.S. citizen at the Declaration of Independence. And Alexander Hamilton was uh, was a British subject. In 1776, Mm -hmm. he was living in New York. Let's bring in another caller. John joins us from Oakville. Thanks for waiting, John. You're on the air. No problem. My goal was to give you a little history on the history. I'm good friends with Ron Chernow and came to know him when he was in Scotland doing research on Hamilton. Mm -hmm. He's just a wonderful Wall Street guy who understands finance, and that was his great interest. Uh, As he was writing Washington we were visiting, and he told me that a young, crazy guy came up to him, uh, 
this hip-hop artist talking about doing Hamilton. And I said, Ron, boy, that sounds great to get the word out. And the genius of Miranda has been to take an amazing historian's tale and to bring it to the public. I think it's been fantastic. And Ron needs to be read by everyone. He's uh, written about the Wahlbergs and Rockefeller and, and uh, Grant recently. So truly a spectacular historian. It's a shame that more of us don't get him. It is. Well, Ron Turner, of course, wrote the book Hamilton, exactly. on which uh, Miranda's uh, musical was based. And, and the story, if I heard it correctly, is that uh, Miranda just picked it up at an airport bookstore when he was going on vacation. And the, and the inspiration came from that. And he adapted it. For someone who was new to the subject, he adapted it extremely well. He must have been going on a long vacation. Because it's a it's long a book. book. No question about it. It's a long book. Time is winding down. I wanted to get to the women. They're an important part Absolutely. of the story. And uh, just tell us how that, that, that whole part of the story was worked into the musical. So in the musical, one of the major themes is Hamilton's relationship with his wife, um, Eliza, with his wife's sisters. And there are, several, there, are, there are too many details to get into now. The first thing to remember is that Hamilton married well, just like George Washington, <clears throat> just like Thomas Jefferson. They actually married women whose families had more wealth than they did. And by marrying into the Schuyler family that was crucial to Hamilton um, moving up um, socially, by all evidence, he had a strong... A romantic relationship with his wife. The musical grapples with that. But there are also indications that he had some kind of a romantic affection for his wife's sister. And we know that Hamilton had an affair um, in the 1790s uh, with Maria Reynolds. And her husband wrote a pamphlet that was critical of Hamilton as Secretary of the Treasury, accused him of breaking all kinds of rules. Hamilton wrote a defense pamphlet that was something like 200 pages going chapter and verse through why he, um, uh, how he had not broken the public trust. And then at the end of it, he said, who is this man to accuse me? He's only done so because I had an affair with his wife. Mm -hmm. So Hamilton would rather go public with the affair, humiliate his own wife, rather than open himself up to accusations of public malfeasance. So his relationships with the women in his life were very complicated, um, but his after he died, Eliza Hamilton, who had endured her husband's death by duel, her oldest son's death by duel, had this not only a long life afterwards, but accomplished a great deal as a widow. Well, it's so nice talking to you, Peter Castor, about uh, the musical Hamilton and the man Hamilton. Uh, again, it's coming to the Fox Theater in just a matter of weeks now. But uh, thank you so much for being with us and telling us about that. Oh, it was a pleasure to be here. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. KWMU.